Welcome, everyone. Welcome back. Yeah, nice to have you back. <clears throat> so we haven't had any Dharma talks since the uh, eight-week practice period, I think. Um, I think I gave you so many words. Are we recording this? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Got it going. <clears throat> Thanks for reminding me. Uh, but I wanted to talk tonight about um, what's the point of a spiritual practice? Why do we do this? Why do we, why do we bother coming here? Why do we bother sitting on our meditation cushion? It's a lot of work. What's the point? So Thich Nhat Hanh is really clear about the point of a spiritual practice. He said the, the point of a spiritual practice is to generate happiness and to transform suffering. To generate happiness and to transform suffering. It's a central teaching of his. And really, the, our whole practice form uh, arises from, from this. It's one of the reasons why we have this slow, gentle, steady practice. In some Buddhist traditions, you go really deep with this tight, tight form, and then you come back out again. And then you go really deep, you do a retreat or a session or something like that, and then you come back out again. But this form, every moment, every day, not trying too hard, not abandoning it, very steady. This talk about happiness is different for Zen. You know, other traditions don't necessarily talk about happiness as the point of a spiritual practice. We even have a song based on one of Tai's poems called Happiness is Here and Now. And we sing that on retreats and at the monasteries. Um, and I think sometimes this is misunderstood because happiness is misunderstood. So someone hears that the point of spiritual practice is happiness, and they can think, oh, great. Well, it makes me really happy to steal things and to exploit people and to abuse people. That makes me really happy. So I get to do that and call it spiritual practice. Well, uh, that's not quite a Thich Nhat Hanh's point. Um, so I think I want to go into a little bit in this talk about what it really means, what happiness actually is. So if we're going to do that, let's back way up a few centuries, back to the Buddha and, and how the Buddha talked about the point of practice, because he used a little bit different language than Thich Nhat Hanh uses. So um, he, the Buddha saw that people were lost in their suffering, so lost in their suffering that they couldn't even see that they were suffering. And that sounds kind of odd, but I think that that is... Um, that's true of us, too. I had a couple of experiences in the last few weeks where I was going about my business in a public setting and there'd be music playing. And I heard, twice it happened to me, I heard songs that were very beautiful songs that had really um, lovely lyrics about um, 
you know, touching into nature and uh, having nice relationships and things. And I can remember when I was a teenager hearing those same songs and being so cynical. You know, so cynical that that was, that was just so hopelessly um, square, for lack of a better word. You know, one, one was a John Denver song. Um, and I used to think John Denver, you know, what, what a geek. <laughs> and I didn't realize until I heard these two songs just recently how much cynicism I had in me as a young person. And when I listen to those songs now, I say, oh, those are really beautiful. But I was so cynical, I, but I couldn't see it. I was suffering, but I, couldn't, I didn't know that I was suffering. And another way that this, this came to me was uh, when I was in China uh, a few weeks ago, and the air is very polluted. Uh, so it's, it's uh, just this gray pallor everywhere. Um, but when you're in it over and over again, you don't notice really. That's just, it's just the way it is. The world is sort of gray. But I came home and I saw the blue sky and the brilliant green of the trees and the, and the pastures. Oh, it was just heaven, absolutely heaven. But when you're in the midst of all that coating of penitentiary gray, you, you don't re even realize there could be blue sky. There could be vibrant colors like that. There could be fresh air that feels nourishing. So I think the Buddha was onto something when he, when he, when he said that um, people are so lost in their suffering that they don't even know they're suffering. So he taught first the Four Noble Truths. Anybody remember that from our practice period? Anybody remember what they are? Can we figure it out together, the, the, the Four Noble Truths? Remember, remember the first one? Suffering. Suffering. Yes, suffering exists, exactly. And the second one? Suffering has causes. There's causes for suffering, right. And the third one? Uh huh. There's, there, it's possible to not suffer. It's possible to call it happiness here, right? Mm -hmm. Happiness is possible. Mm -hmm. And what's the fourth one? There's a way, yeah. But notice he starts with suffering exists. That's the very first thing that he taught. And he, ta he said, you know, I teach suffering and the liberation from suffering. And he wouldn't allow himself to get pulled into philosophical discussions that, that were not to that point because he felt it didn't help people. It didn't help people to, to see their suffering and find a way out of their suffering. So he, there's many, many instances in the sutras where the Buddha's asked philosophical questions and he just, hmm? he just doesn't answer, just doesn't respond. So um, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about generating suffering and transforming, I mean, excuse me, generating happiness and transforming suffering. And the Buddha talked primarily about recognizing suffering and transforming it. So what's the difference? Well, guess what? There's no difference. Um, they're saying the same thing. <clears throat> uh, so how do we talk about this? Let's see. What's the best way? So how do we, how do we say they're the same thing? Okay, maybe this glass of water would help us. <clears throat> if we take the idea that, um, that 
suffering exists and we need to see our suffering, we'll see that this glass is half empty of water and we'll say, oh no, I might not have enough water to get through this day. If we see the other way that happiness exists and we want to generate happiness, we'll say, oh, there's already half a glass of water here and surely I'll get through this day with enough water. Exactly the same amount of water is in the glass, right? There's, there's no difference. One way we look at it, we can think about it at the suffering of it being half full. And another way we look at it, we look at the happiness of it being half full. We're looking at the same thing just through different lens. So Thich Nhat Hanh could say, the point of spiritual practice is to generate happiness. And he could stop there. I think it's probably more skillful to say than both, but he could say that. And the Buddha could say, um, I teach suffering and the liberation for suffering. They're talking about exactly the same water in the same, in the same glass. So it's not, that, it's not that different. Maybe it's best to think of, of suffering and happiness not as two different things, but as a continuum of things. You know, that at one end, seen by itself, is suffering. At the other end, seen by itself, is, is happiness. But you can't have happiness without suffering. You can't have suffering without happiness. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh would love to have a piece of chalk in his hand. And he'd say, you know, here, there's a left and a right to this piece of chalk, a left end and a right end. And if I break it in two, I break off the left end. Well, now I still have a right end and a left end. There's no getting rid of the left and right. There's no getting rid of happiness and its corollary, suffering. But we really want to do that. You know, we really try and do that. In fact, our primary way in our culture of thinking about um, happiness and suffering is to pretend that there is a place of complete happiness, heaven. And there's a place of complete suffering, hell. And they are far apart away from each other and they, the, the two don't touch. But it doesn't make much sense to me. You know, one way of thinking about, about um, heaven is that when I die as a male, I might have go to heaven and I have 77 virgins to serve me. Well, that might sound like heaven from one perspective, but I don't think those 77 women think that's heaven <laughs> to serve me for an eternity. You know? <laughs> so even the idea of heaven doesn't really uh, hold up in my mind. But I think we can have a different way of looking at it. We can look at it as this continuum. So we're invited not to grab onto um, suffering or grab onto happiness as hard and fast entities, but instead to learn the art of living happily, to learn the art of generating happiness and reducing suffering. And it turns out they're the same thing. The art of reducing our suffering is generating our happiness. The art of generating our happiness is reducing our suffering. So let's talk a little bit about that art. So let's talk first about suffering, since that's what the Buddha talked about. <clears throat> the first thing we get to do to transform our suffering is to see our suffering. And this seems obvious, right? That, to be able to see that we are suffering, but it's not entirely obvious. You know, when I, when I told that story about me recognizing my cynicism toward those singers, 
I didn't know that I was cynical. I didn't know that my heart was closed and hard. I couldn't see it. We often think of, of, our, of suffering as something huge. You know, that it means that, oh, this is the thing that happens to me when my child dies, um, when I get a cancer diagnosis, when, you know, something huge, then I'm suffering. But I think uh, that's a misnomer because we've translated the original term that the Buddha used incorrectly. I don't think we should have translated it as suffering. It's too strong of a word. Maybe a better translation would be something like dis-ease. The original word in Sanskrit is dukkha. Um, and it has a connotation of not just the big things, but also the little things. And one of the literal meanings of, the, of dukkha means a wheel with an off-centered hub that isn't quite right. So imagine, imagine you're in the time of the Buddha and you have an ox cart that you can be transported on back and forth between your farm and the village. And you've got two dukkha wheels on this thing, right? It's not like you're going to break your leg and have that kind of suffering. But, but the ride is going to be, you know, like this all the way. You're just going to be have dis-ease, you know? You, you, won't, you won't be lying there on this car thinking, oh, this is so luxurious. You'll be going, bouncing, like, oh, 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 like that. <clears throat> so if we can think of suffering not as the big things, but the little ways that we go through life that are just kind of sandpapery, just kind of not right, I think that's better. Another, th- another reason we don't see our suffering is that we um, confuse our suffering for happiness. Yeah, this is really easy to do. So it's easy when we can look outside and see this in, in the gross ways. Like, for instance, um, in, in the American South in the 1800s, people bought other human beings and enslaved them because they thought it would make them happy. They thought it would make them happy to have this, quote, free labor that would do the work so they could get more wealthy. They didn't see that they were suffering. They didn't see that they were causing suffering on other people, the enslaved people. They didn't see that they were suffering themselves from creating a system that they had to live within they didn't see the suffering they created for their whole culture and they didn't certainly didn't see the suffering they are going to create in our culture for the next 200 years that we're still we're still working on this so they confused their suffering for happiness and and fought for the right to keep those slaves i don't think that's that different from things we're doing right now it's just a little easier to see. You know, future generations might look back and say, you confuse the, the, the suffering of um, driving your cars for happiness. Or you confuse the suffering of um, creating all this plastic for happiness. I'm happy when I can use my plastic fork. No, I'm really creating suffering. But it can be really subtle, too. 
you know, really, really subtle. So I do uh, morning exercises every day. And uh, many days I have to talk myself into doing them. Many days I say, I don't want to do that. And I can find all kinds of reasons not to do it. All kinds of reasons not to do it. But, you know, I, I, was, I was sick for uh, almost a month and then went to China for two weeks. So six weeks or so, I didn't do my exercises. And I started doing my exercises when I got back from China. And um, I realized that that is my happiness. Uh, but I confuse it. Uh, I confuse it. I, I don't see that it's my happiness. So <clears throat> we all do these kind of things. It might be really an interesting practice to look and see how do you confuse your suffering for happiness. Uh, so next, the next step that we that we need to do to be able to practice with our suffering is to open ourselves to it. Once we see it, then we have to actually open ourselves to being with our suffering. This isn't easy. Um, you know, we don't have to put a lot of work into this. Our, our suffering will find us. <laughs> you know? And if, we did, if we're not open to it, it'll come back. It'll come back. And we don't have to go looking for it. We don't have to go dig it up. It's right there. I think the key here is to be open to our suffering without judgment. You know, not judging what it is that we're suffering from. Oh, that, I shouldn't do that. No, I, that's not me. I don't have those kind of ideas. I don't do that in the world. I, I don't treat people like that. You, know, you, you have to be open to the fact that maybe you do. Um, and, and the reason that openness is really important is because uh, the alternative is to judge. And judging is just more suffering. It's just adding suffering onto suffering. But if we can just, if we can look with that open heart at what's happening and be open to it and accept it, then we have the possibility of transforming it. And that's the third step, is to transform our suffering. And luckily, a big part of transforming our suffering is just simply being open to it. You know, it has a way of transforming itself. We don't have to do a lot of work. Our work is to see it, to be open to it, and to allow it to transform. It will do it by itself. We don't have to dream up a 10-step program or something. It, it will do it by itself. <coughs> but what we can do is we can, once we see and are open to the suffering, we can make a, a resolution, make an intention not to continue to water that seed of suffering. That's what we can do. We, we make this resolution not to con continue to inflict that on ourselves over and over and over, like we've been doing all our lives. It's an act of compassion, really, to decide to transform our suffering. So we have lots of practices in our, uh, in our Zen tradition to help with this. And our precepts are a wonderful one. Our precepts are a way, when we take those, when we take those aspirations, the aspiration not to kill, to steal, to lie, to misuse sexuality, to consume unwisely. When we take those precepts and, and vow to live by those precepts, what we're really saying is, 
I choose not to water the seeds of those that those behaviors water. So we can resolve um, that to really watch our speech, for instance, and see when our unkind speech, our untrue speech, creates suffering for us, let alone other people, but creates suffering for us. So it's nice to it's nice to practice this. Um, what's the right word for it? I want to say restraint, maybe, in our behavior, because it's a kind of self-compassion. And the more we do that, we become very sensitive to the the uh, when we do create suffering for ourselves in the way we've been practicing this kind of restraint, and and we just don't want to do it anymore. It's not restraint anymore. It's a gift. It's a gift of compassion. Okay, so those are the, some of the ways we can practice with our suffering. So how can we generate happiness? Um, our lives are, are often painful uh, in big and small ways. You know, we have birth is painful, death is painful, loss is painful, grief is painful. All these things are are unrealized dreams that can be painful. Lots of things are painful. Um, But pain doesn't equate to suffering. They aren't the same thing. We can have pain, but not suffer. Um, And it's because our mental habits are what cause us to suffer. The way we encounter our pain is what really causes us to suffer. So this is really kind of hard to get our minds around, um, but we can look at it in in some people who really have a a deep practice that can show us this. For instance, Thich Nhat Hanh. So Thich Nhat Hanh had a stroke. Thich Nhat Hanh had a stroke a few years ago, and he lost a lot. He lost the ability to speak. He lost the ability to walk. He could no longer give the talks that he gave. He could no longer write the books that he, that he wrote. He could no longer lead the community. He had a huge amount of loss, huge amount of physical pain, a huge amount of uh, the pain of losing the things that were important to him but he didn't suffer, and he still doesn't suffer. He's still um, himself. There's a story of one of the nuns that went to visit him was telling about how uh, she went to speak with him and she was kneeling there um, by him. And he reached out and touched her, and she could feel his whole self there. There was no suffering. There was no self-pity. There's no withdraw, he was giving her the teaching in the way he touched her. It's possible that we don't necessarily have to suffer when our life is painful, and our life is inevitably painful, but it's not inevitably suffering. So this is how we end up generating happiness. Um, The key to generating happiness is in one of our sutras. It's It's on the Discourse on Happiness. One of the phrases that I practice with a lot, it says, 
to live in the world with your heart undisturbed by the world. This is the greatest happiness. To live in the world, in the world of pain, with your heart undisturbed by the world, free from suffering. This is the greatest happiness. So we do this very much the same way we practice with suffering. So the first, the first step with su- our suffering was to see our suffering. Well, we also can practice by seeing our happiness. Ironically, I think this is harder than seeing our suffering. <clears throat> there's, there's been some studies on the human bias to negativity. And this, this one study that I read said that we see about five times as many negative as neutral or positive elements. We take in the negative. And the theory is that um, if you, if you were, as you were, were evolving, you notice what's wrong, you saved your life from what was wrong, and you passed on your genes. So you passed on your genes of someone who's a worrywart. And so we <laughs> tend to be you know, a, a, a whole species of worrywarts. So it takes, uh, it takes extra effort to see our happiness. And again, we have lots of practices that help us do that. Let's, let's do something right now. Let's see our happiness. Let's bring our attention back into our bodies and notice our breath coming in and out. Can you feel the way the air is moving in and out, completely free and easily? I've been at the bedside of so many people with lung illness that can no longer breathe easily. They struggle with every breath. It's They would give anything to feel the happiness that we can feel right now simply by breathing in and breathing out. Happiness is here and now. This is just one small thing. And there are an infinite number of healing and nourishing elements around us and inside of us all the time. All the time. Our job is to notice them. This is how we generate happiness. We notice the happiness that's already there. We don't have to chase it out there somewhere. We don't have to say, when the conditions are right, I'll be happy. The conditions are right all the time. Even for Thich Nhat Hanh, with his stroke, the conditions are right for him to be happy. And if he could speak, he'd be the first one to tell us that. We have uh, so many practices we could do to to water this seed of noticing our happiness. One of them is uh, gata practice. So gata is these little poems that we use. 
Uh, it's a foundational practice that the first two years Thich Nhat Hanh was in the monastery, that's all he did was memorize gattas. And there are little poems for every sort of aspect of our life. Waking up. Waking up this morning, I smile. 24 brand new hours are before me. I vow to live them all in mindfulness and work for the benefit of all beings. That's the gatha for getting out of bed. Brushing your teeth. Brushing my teeth and rinsing my mouth, I vow to speak truthfully and lovingly. Every aspect of our life, we can see the happiness element in it. We can see that whilst brushing my teeth, I have teeth to brush. <laughs> I have teeth that work. You know? um, the mindfulness practice that, that Thich Nhat Hanh teaches us is to brush each tooth and greet each tooth with gratitude. There it is, serving us for 40, 50, 60, 70 years without ever complaining. Well, sometimes complaining. <laughs> but we know, how to, we know how to fix it, right? Yeah. So the first practice is to see our happiness. The second practice, just like with our suffering, is to allow, allow our practice, I mean, allow our happiness to be present. We have to recognize that we have this negativity bias and that we can overcome that negativity bias simply by noticing it and now making room for the happiness to be there. It's not easy because our ego um, doesn't necessarily want to be happy. The ego thrives on striving. And when we're happy, we don't have to strive. Because here it is, right now. Happiness is here and now. So it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. This is not an easy practice. So when the voices come up that say, oh, that's, no, 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 I can't, I can't be happy, no, no, then we have, to, we have to stop and say, oh, but wait a minute. The conditions are always good enough for me to be awake. Where is the happiness? And then, and then finally, after we've seen our happiness, allowed our happiness, now we have to water the seeds of happiness. So our ability to be happy in the world grows you know, this is so important for us to be happy in the world because we aren't doing this practice just for ourselves. This isn't hedonism. This isn't so I can live a life which is the, uh, you know, has such great happiness for me and the heck with all the rest of you. Our happiness changes the world. You know, we have ripples that flow out from us in all directions with every action that we take, every thought that we have, it matters. And when you can live a happy life, you can give other people the ability to begin living a happy life too. You can change the world with your happiness because practice is not about you. It starts with you and you have to have integrity with your practice, but it's not about you. You are so much more than just you. So when we water the seeds of, of happiness, we can take up very simple, concrete practices to do that. For instance, we can, we can decide to smile. You know, smiling can bring happiness. Happiness doesn't just have to bring smiling. Smiling can actually bring happiness. Try it right now. 
You smile. I mean, really, just a, just a little half smile with not even a big obvious thing on your face. Do you notice it in your body? You feel happy. You know, maybe the thing we think of as happiness is nothing else than this, the smile. It can come first. What would it be like to practice that throughout the day? You know, you just go to, you go to the sink to rinse out your teacup and you just decide to smile. You don't feel happy. You just decide to smile and suddenly you're happy. Amazing, huh? So um, another thing we can do is to enjoy our tea when we drink our tea. Don't drink our tea while we're reading the newspaper or while we're um, washing the dishes. Drink our tea. Taste it. Enjoy it. I'm particularly loving this practice right now because I brought tea back from China <laughs> and I'm becoming a, a sort of a kind of sort of a tea habit and becoming quickly becoming a green tea snob. <laughs> <laughs> Learning how to make it just so. And I'm actually noticing when I did it tastes different when I don't make it just so. Oh, this could be really dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really enjoying my tea. Really enjoying my tea. Um, like we did earlier, we could have the simple practice of breathing. The joy of this breath. Wow. This clear, clean air. I didn't have that at all in China. Not a single breath of clear, clean air. And I come here, and it's so abundant, I don't even notice it anymore. I gotta notice it. Gotta generate happiness. So these mindfulness practices are really at the, at the heart of what we do. And um, we'll talk about these till the cows come home. Uh, but not tonight. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, so anyway, that's, that's, that's just one way that we can unpack this statement of Thich Nhat Hanh's. The point of spiritual practice is to generate happiness and transform suffering. Um, so that's really all I want to say about about this tonight. Um, my hope is that you will find new inspiration to generate your happiness and to see that your happiness is not your individual matter, but that everyone depends on your happiness for their well-being. <laughs>